again, church family. <clears throat> I may have to clear my throat a few times today. I'm having some <clears throat> sore throat issues, but I'm thankful to be here. And so if you, if you hear that, or if I had been down here behind the pulpit to drink some water, just know that's why. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm so thankful you're here this morning. I want to uh, just pick up where we left off last week. So last week, uh, we were looking at a, a set of two parables uh, concerning prayer. Uh, Jesus was telling these kind of connected parables in light of his teaching on the second coming. Uh, and remember that time period we find ourselves in, we talked about of the already and the not yet. Like the kingdom of God is already here. Uh, Jesus announced it when he came, and yet there is a future culmination of the kingdom that we are waiting for. And so we're kind of in this time period uh, where it is both a present reality and a future hope. And so in light of that, Jesus gives these two parables. The first we saw last week concerned an unjust judge and a widow, and the second a Pharisee and a tax collector. And so it's the second uh, parable we turn to now. It's often simply been called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, or the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, depending on your preferred translation, uh, which simply highlights there are two parties involved in this parable. And so we're going to look at that parable today. So if you have your Bibles open to Luke 18 at verse 9, as you see on the screen there, and we're going to read beginning at verse 9. And so as last week, uh, we're going to begin this morning with the purpose of the parable. And so that's where we're going to start this morning, the purpose of the parable. Of this parable. And so we find that purpose stated for us clearly in verse 9, if you would look there now. He also told them a parable, this parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so Jesus, uh, we find out up front why he's telling this parable. And as we've noted last week, that this is uh, having the purpose stated so clearly up front is not normative. When it comes to parables, right? The, the purpose and the main point of the parable is usually kind of revealed at the very end or Jesus pulls the disciples aside later and reveals it afterwards. But here, under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke uh, provides the key to understanding these parables at the very beginning with his commentary. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, in the first parable we saw last week, it was evident that his intended audience was his disciples, right? And his goal was to encourage them to pray always without losing heart. This week, it seems Jesus' intended audience is the Pharisees that started this whole responsive teaching by Jesus when they asked about the kingdom of God, our kingdom of heaven. They said, when is the kingdom of heaven coming? And he launched into teaching about the second coming and then giving these two following parables. So Jesus, seeing what was in their hearts and knowing their minds, knew they needed to understand that their trust was misplaced. They thought they were ready for the kingdom of God to come. And Jesus wants them to understand that their trust was misplaced, and because of that, they were actually treating others with contempt. And so let's spend a few moments looking at Luke's introductory commentary there and its implications. He says, Jesus told this to some who trusted. And the idea there is, is to be persuaded or to have confidence in something. And so these are people who had confidence, who were assured and persuaded in themselves that they were ready for the kingdom of God. They had had confidence uh, in themselves. That is, they possessed this confidence or they had been persuaded by their own minds. If you ask them, are you righteous? They were confident that they were. They were persuaded that they were. 
that they were righteous. And that, that word simply means right with God. Uh, because of their obedience and their actions, they thought they were right with God. And the Bible says, and they treated others with contempt. But literally, it means they viewed the rest with contempt. So us, everybody else, right? That, that's, that's the word. Everybody else that wasn't a Pharisee, everybody else that wasn't as religious as me, they viewed with contempt. That is, they thought they were worth less than they were. They were beneath consideration or deserving scorn. And so the, those who trusted themselves, that they were righteous and had placed themselves above others, this is the parable that Jesus is telling to. And so before we get too comfortable placing the intended recipients of this parable in a category of them rather than us, because that's easy to do, isn't it? Oh, man, those Pharisees. Get them, Jesus. We need to stop and ask ourselves, what does this really look like to trust ourselves and treat others with contempt? This is someone who is convinced that they are right with God and anyone that isn't as good as them or as right as them is therefore less than they are. And we have to be honest, this kind of thinking isn't confined or limited to first century Pharisees. When a Christian leaves their house on Sunday morning to go to church and as they look down on all their neighbors whose cars are still in the driveway. As a Christian looks down on the sinners around them for their attitudes, their actions and lifestyles and deems them to be one of those people. When a Christian looks down on another Christian because the women of that denomination wear pants or because they wear long dresses because they like a different style of music in their church because they fill in the blank different than me that I'm better than them this is the attitude Jesus condemns it's not limited to Pharisees like this is the attitude that rightfully often gives the world ammunition to look at the church and say hypocrites because they see us saying one thing and doing another because our brand of Christianity, our way of doing things is right and therefore everyone else is beneath us. This is the attitude Jesus is condemning. And listen, have you not ever, even for a moment, thought because you went to church more faithfully, read your Bible more faithfully, served more faithfully, have you never honestly thought for a moment you might be better than someone else? Look at your neighbor and say, I've done that. And if your neighbor didn't say that, look, I'm going to say, quit lying in church. Because this is the natural tendency of man, to, to compare ourselves to other people. You see it with kids. It's natural. I'm taller. I'm faster. I'm like, right? It, it becomes a thing immediately when people get together. Like, we do this. It creeps in. And, and this is what self-righteousness is. And it only exists in comparison of others. The way I measure my rightness or righteousness with God or the way I measure my confidence is look at someone else and say, I'm doing better than they are, so I must be okay. I'm not a murderer, right? I've never cheated on my spouse. I don't lie on my taxes. I go to church every time the doors are open. I'm better than them. 
And this is why I think Jesus ties these two things together, trusting in ourselves and treating others with contempt. When we make others our standard of goodness in comparison to feel better about ourselves, the other side is we have to start viewing them worse and worse, right? If I'm constantly looking to be better than them, I'm constantly pushing them down, and I'm constantly exaggerating their faults, right, so that I can be that much better, that much more righteous, And so if my righteousness is found in my view of myself and in comparison with others, the natural tendency is then to begin to look at others with contempt. So listen, Jesus wasn't just talking to the Pharisees. Like this, we can't just put this in a little box and say, man, Jesus got those Pharisees. He gave them a good lesson. Man, this was good. Jesus is talking to anyone who will be faced with the opportunity to compare their religious obedience with someone else and then use that comparison to feel secure or good about themselves. This parable is for us. I believe this is a danger for every single one of us, and so I pray we would all listen closely to this parable that Jesus gives um, because it is for us. So let's look at this parable that Jesus Last week, we talked about some of the different kinds of parables involving God. Uh, Some parables we see God as one of the characters in the parable, like uh, the parable of the prodigal son, where God is the the loving father who who rushes to meet his son, or uh, in the vineyard owner, where God owns a vineyard, and he sends his servants, and then he sends his son. Like, these are people that represent God. And some parables, like the one we saw, the unjust judge and the persistent widow that we looked at last week, Rather than God being represented by one of the characters, he's contrasted with one of the characters, right? So, like, the unjust judge is everything that God isn't. So, by looking at him, we understand God in contrast. And then today, there is, in this parable, uh, rather than God being represented or contrasted, uh, there's a contrast between two people, two characters, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and ultimately their relationship with God. Like, that's, that's the contrast. How the Pharisee is related to God and how the tax collector relates to God. And that is the contrast that we see. And, and it's both imagined and real. Uh, what they think their relationship is and what it actually is. And so you have this parable of contrast. Let's, let's look at the first, uh, the way Jesus kind of introduces this in verse 10. He says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, There's an immediate contrast that would have been readily apparent to his audience. Um, Two men went up to pray, one a Pharisee. Now, like, we often immediately place him in the category of the bad guy, right? Like, we've been in church long enough to know Pharisee equals bad guy. But in Jesus' day, the Pharisee was the good guy, right? Like, this was the, the guy that was an active participant in society. He was well-educated. He was self-disciplined. He was religiously obedient. He was well-respected. Like today we might use the term pastor or elder, someone with a good reputation and admirable life. Like this was a religious good guy. And then you have the tax collector. A tax collector was someone who had essentially become a traitor to his people. When the Roman government would come in and, ca- and capture a land, they would levy taxes on them. We understand that. And they would send a, a, a Roman citizen to be over a big area, and then that person would recruit locals to actually collect the taxes. So to do this job, you had to turn your back on your people, 
work for the oppressor, and most often the only way you would get any money as this, it would be what you could exhort over and above what was actually due. So, like, you had to kind of build in a percentage for yourself. To do so was to literally cheat your brothers and sisters out of money to make a living. Like, this was someone who was the bad guy. Like one commentator said, we, we, we get this wrong. We think like, oh, he was just lowly viewed. Now, like this is, in, in our day, this is a, a sex trafficker. This is a, a pimp. This is someone who makes their living off the backs and the misfortune of other people. Like this is a bad guy. So Jesus has these two characters that could not be more different. Like these, the tax collectors are guys that, that get booed wherever they go, right? Like where people grab their purses and their wallets and they don't invite them. Like they're not good people. So Jesus sets this parable up by introducing these two vastly different and contrasting characters on the similar activity. They're growing up to the temple to pray. And listen, the reason that we say all that is because his audience would have immediately felt the contrast and the weight of what was happening. Because for a Pharisee to go up to pray, that was normal. But for a, a tax collector, he shouldn't even darken the door of the temple. Like, he, she, he has no business going to the temple. And so there's this <coughs> immediate contrast as they come. But then when they get there, Jesus shares a further contrast about them. And we're going to look under that, under their posture, their prayer, and their petition. And so let's read this parable together beginning in verse 11. <clears throat> the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I, I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So let's look at their posture. You have the posture of the Pharisee. The Bible says he's standing, and we have to believe most likely as close as he could get. Like in the temple system, you had kind of the outer court of the Gentiles, and then you had a, the court where Jewish women could come, and then you had this inner court for Jewish men, and then you had the inner court for the priests where the sacrifices took place, and then the holy place, and inside the holy of holies. Like, this was the system of getting close to the presence of God. And so as a Pharisee, he could come all the way to the inner place, but not into the, where the sacrifices were. That was reserved for the priest. But he could get close uh, to as close as anyone could. And so he's standing there, and we know he's aware of his surroundings because he knows the tax collector is there, right? So his posture is one, uh, he's up, he's looking, he's observing what is happening. He's, his head is up. The, the Bible says he prayed uh, uh, head up, eyes towards heaven, confident and assured. This is his posture. He is proud to be there, right? And then in the corner, you have a tax collector. The Bible says standing afar off. Would not lift his eyes to heaven, beat his breast. He came to the temple at the time of sacrifice and presumably into the court of Israel. But from the sound of it, he only got just inside. He stood as far off as he could in the place where he was allowed as a Jewish man. And he wouldn't look up. He wouldn't look to heaven. He wouldn't 
He wasn't looking around. Like his posture was, was head down. Drawed near God, presu- not presumptuously like the, the Pharisee, but reverently. So you have this very different posture immediately. One who is standing there as though he belongs there, and one who is just grateful to be in the corner, right? Head down. So you have this posture of pride, this posture of humility. And then what's the prayer of the Pharisees, the Pharisee? Thank you, God, that I'm better than all these other men. I've kept myself from large sins. I'm not aggressively greedy. I'm not deceitful to others. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a traitor. Let me list the good things that I do. I go above and beyond what is required religiously. Uh, The fast was only required once a year, and he fasted weekly. Tithing, according to the law, was only certain crops, but he tithed everything. Like, so he's saying, like, I I go above and beyond what is required of me. And listen, everything in this prayer is not necessarily bad. On Wednesday night, we talked about how Jesus calls us to be above and beyond just generous, right? Like, he calls us to live generously. But it's not what was in his prayer that condemns him. It was what was missing from his prayer that condemns him. So his prayer was all about what he did and what he didn't do, and there was nothing else. But listen to the prayer of the tax collector. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Literally, the sinner. The language here is like, if there ever was a sinner, it's me. Like, I'm the sinner. Not a sinner, it's not, hey, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, right? It's, it's, I'm the worst one there is. I'm the sinner. This is his prayer. Be merciful to the sinner. <coughs> it reminds us when Paul says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's what Paul said. He said, I, I am the sinner. And maybe he got the language from from here, but here in Jesus' story, the prayer of the tax collector is that God would be merciful to him, the sinner. So as as we look at their posture, you have the Pharisee standing proudly, whose prayer is all about what he does and doesn't do. And so we have to ask, what was his petition? I mean, why did he come to the temple to pray? What was he asking God for? There's nothing immediately obvious because he makes no formal request, right? He doesn't ask God for anything. But I think if we look at what he says, we can discern what he's asking. He's asking for praise. Listen to what he says, right? Look at what I do on your behalf, God. Look at how righteous I am. He gives the faintest nod to God, and then his prayer is all about himself. He uses I some like five times in this little short prayer. Like, God, look at me. That's the petition, right? The petition is, I'm good, look at me. And Jesus has already condemned this kind of prayer before. In Matthew 6, he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. What they wanted was to be seen and praised by men. And Jesus says they received their reward, or in a sense, they received what they were asking for in the first place. Their petition is one of 
praise. When your righteousness is built on self, you need people to prop you up in praise. You need people to tell you how good you are. And so the Pharisee had heard it from the people on the corner when he stood and he prayed aloud and he had all the, the good words and he had all those things. And people would say, man, I wish I could pray like you. Well, he felt good about himself, right? Or when he, he said, no, thank you. I can't accept your invitation. I'm fasting. If you couldn't tell by the dirty, disheveled hair, right? I'm fasting. I wish I could fast like you, right? Like he got all the praise. And so then there's only one person left that he needs praise from. He's got to get it from God. So he goes to the temple and he says, I fast and I tithe. And I've never done any of these things. And so his petition is one of praise and recognition. The petition of the tax collector is, is much different. He's asking God to be merciful to him. And, and the key to understanding that is to understand the word merciful, which is the word propitiated. Literally be propitiated to me. It's a, it's a very kind of unusual word in this way. Uh, it's used only in this kind of sense once else in the New Testament. And it's used in the sense of, of making reconciliation by sacrifice. Um, in Hebrews, it's used this way, and this kind of help us, helps us understand it. Therefore, he, Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Uh, to be the propitiation is to be the sacrifice that makes the relationship with God a, a, a possible, right? So the, 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 the tax collector is looking at God and saying, reconcile me by doing on what only you can and I can't, right? He sees his need to be reconciled. He sees his sin, and he says, God, you're the only one that can fix this. Be my propitiation. Reconcile me to yourself. So here's the two different pictures we have. You have the proud, self-centered, look-at-me prayer, and then you have the humble, God-centered petition, have mercy on me. What a contrast that Jesus paints here. Two men go up to pray. Before we move on to what Jesus says about after this short parable, let us firmly get in mind what we have just witnessed. Like, let me set the scene for you in the way that I understand it. There, there were prayers at the temple twice a day. And they, they were in coordination with the daily sacrifices. And so these two men who were Jewish would have been close enough, they would have been within eyesight of the priest and their work and sacrifices, Right? And so as they're watching this, one looked on, and this was his idea. If there's anything needed beyond what I can do and my good work and my character, that sacrifice will be sufficient, right? Like, I'm a good guy, and if I missed anything, that takes care of it. One looked on the sacrifice knowing that he brought nothing to the table and that only God could forgive his sin by the mercy of propitiation. That is, accepting that sacrifice on his behalf. One thought... He was made right by God, with God by his works. And one believed it can only happen by the grace and mercy of God. And Jesus says only one of them was right. It's not two ways. Pharisee thought he was right with God because of his good works and his obedience. And the tax collector 
pled the mercy of God to be right with God, which brings us to what Jesus proclaims after this in the first part of verse, verse 14. The proclamation is this. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And when Jesus says, I tell you, like it's his way of saying, like, listen, like, I'm, I'm going to tell you something. Listen, regardless of what you think about Pharisees and tax collectors, like regardless of where you thought this was going, listen, I tell you, this is the reality of these two men. One went down justified. Well, who is this man? The tax collector. The tax collector went down to his house justified. Justified means to be declared right with God. To be justified is to be put in right standing with God, and it covers both the, the, the rendering someone righteous and the declaration of that righteousness. So he went home right with God rather than the other, which is to say, and not the other. Because the Pharisee wasn't seeking justification, so he didn't get it. He, he wasn't seeking God's reconciliation. He didn't think he needed it. He felt no need of it, and so he didn't get it. And here's the very weighty point that Jesus makes. Only one of these men was put in right relation with God. Whether or not either one of or both thought they were. The Pharisee went in and came out thinking he was in right relationship with God that he was righteous, and yet Jesus says he was not. The tax collector came knowing that he was not, and he, listened. he may have even left wondering if he was, but Jesus says he was. This is important, because listen, the Bible says that one day we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And whether we are welcome into everlasting life or sent away into everlasting damnation is whether or not we are accepted or right with God. And as Jesus clearly shows here, it's not whether we think we are. It's whether God says we are. So what do we do with that? Where do we go from there? Jesus finishes his application of this parable by introducing this, this principle often repeated in the kingdom of, of God and in Scripture. And I want to share that with you briefly, the principle. Jesus finishes this whole block of, of parables here with this. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Anyone, all people, everyone who elevate themselves, raises themselves up, will be brought low by God, and everyone who lowers themselves will be lifted up and raised to honor. Like this is the, the often repeated scripture from, from the Old Testament to the New. Now we looked at this a few months ago when Jesus told this parable uh, of the wedding feast, when the, the, the people were trying to find the best seats. He finished that parable with, with this same thing. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He says it uh, many different ways and many different times. It says it in the Psalms 51. It talks about how the sacrifices of God, that what is acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, like God will not despise those things in humility. Psalm 138, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Psalms 147, Lord lifts up the humble, but casts the wicked to the ground. Isaiah 57, for thus is the one who is high and lifted up, 
who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and the holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Like, uh, God, this is a repeated scripture. If, if you raise yourself up, God is going to bring you down. But if you will lower yourself in humility, God will elevate you and, and raise you up. He dwells with those who are broken of spirit and contrite. God, listen, God does not tolerate self-righteous pride. Why? Because it's not rooted in truth. This is what, it, this is what I mean. The truth is, all have sinned and gone astray. The truth is, we've all done evil in God's sight. There is none good, no, not one. We all stand utterly guilty before his perfect holiness. So self-righteousness is a lie, and God will not tolerate lies. Why does he withstand the proud? Because they're standing on lies. There's nothing for them to be proud of or to elevate themselves from. And so to stand on any ground of your own merit is to set yourself up to be brought down. Often I think when we hear the, the, to exalt ourselves, we think, well, I'm not that kind of person. Like I don't go around placing myself on a pedestal. Right? I, don't, I don't go around saying I'm better than everyone. If you stand on any ground of your own goodness, you've elevated yourself. That's what Jesus is teaching. Like to elevate yourself is to be brought low, but to realize that you've got nowhere, nothing to stand on, to be truthful about your condition and throw yourselves on the mercy of God. Those are the ones that God extends an invitation of his imputed righteousness and raises up. We see this clearly in our parable today. Like, one exalted themselves, and God says, he went home not right with me. One humbled themselves, and God says, he went home right with me. So here's the question I want to ask. What does this look like for a follower of Christ? You say, Pastor, I've thrown myself on, on the mercy of God. I've humbled myself. I realize I have nothing good to earn my salvation. How do I keep from shifting my confidence from Christ to my own works? Because, guys, it happens. I've seen it. We come before God and we claim to be nothing and to have nothing and we fall on our face and then we get up and think, okay, I got it now. And we go through our life as though we earned it. What keeps us from living this way? Listen, Paul gives us what what I say is, I'm going to call the model prayer. If you take notes in your Bible, I want you to write by this parable, 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. Like, if you want to turn there, you can because this, this is the prayer of the tax collector. This, this is what it looks like on the other side of that prayer. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing to me to this service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What's the answer? We don't lose our perspective. We realize that we were the sinner. And the only reason we are right with God is because of his overwhelming grace towards us. That on our best day, in our best year, in the best decade of our lives, our religious obedience isn't a basis for self-righteousness, but evidence of God's grace and mercy in our lives. That's what Paul understood. Every church he planted, every book he wrote, every disciple he made, it wasn't about his religious obedience. It was about the grace and the mercy of God at work in the sinner. How do we keep our posture like the the tax collector and not become the Pharisee? We keep our perspective that We are still the sinner. We're just a sinner saved by grace. Like we are still the person who needed sinning, saving. A couple of months ago, we looked at that, the first place Jesus stated this kingdom principle of exaltation and humility by looking at Jesus' dinner party parable. And as I was reading back over that, I finished that sermon with the following statement, and I couldn't help but restate it here. So here we are, faced with this unavoidable reality that Jesus states so clearly. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And we have to ask, do I find the position of my heart to be one of exalting myself or humbling myself? Is my understanding of myself that I am a poor, wretched sinner in need of saving or someone who deserves praise from God? It cannot be both. You either know you need saving or you think you need praising. And Jesus says of those two paths, only one path leads to righteousness. Righteousness.